Thanks, Brian. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Brandon. I didn't introduce myself earlier. Uh, Brandon Buller. I am on staff at New Life Presbyterian, uh, Sister Church of, of City Hope. Um, I am a church planting resident getting prepared to plant in Fort Wayne. So this is pretty exciting news. Uh, that's what our family's uh, trajectory is and our ministry is going to be. Um, it's a hard path. Um, I'm sure Josh has probably a lot of stories that would uh, make me rethink my, my idea of planting a church, but uh, we're still really excited about what the Lord wants to do. Um, recognize some of y'all. Good to see y'all, Nagel Kirks. Um, and uh, yeah, it's not my first time here. You might re- recognize me, um, but it's really, really good to be back and to uh, bring God's word to you today. Uh, the word is going to be from Psalm 34, um, and I'm going to read that text to us now, but if you would please stand uh, for the reading of the Word of God. It's a little bit long, uh, but bear with me. Psalm 34, a psalm of David regarding the time he pretended to be insane in front of Abimelech, who sent him away. I will praise the Lord at all times. I will constantly speak his praises. I will boast only in the Lord. Let all who are helpless take heart. Come, let us tell of the Lord's greatness. Let us exalt his name together. I prayed to the Lord and he answered me. He freed me from all my fears. Those those who look to him for help will be radiant with joy. No shadow of shame will darken their faces. In my desperation, I prayed and the Lord listened. He saved me from all my troubles. For the angel of the Lord is a guard. He surrounds and defends all who fear him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his godly people, for those who fear him will have all they need. Even strong young lions sometimes go hungry, but those who trust in the Lord will lack No good thing. Come, my children, and listen to me, and I will teach you to fear the Lord. Does anyone want to live a life that is long and prosperous? Then keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right. His ears are open to their cries for help. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. He will erase their memory from the earth. The Lord hears his people when they call to him for help. He rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. The righteous person faces many troubles, but the Lord comes to the rescue each time. For the Lord protects the bones of the righteous. Not one of them is broken. Calamity will surely destroy the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be punished. But the Lord will redeem those who serve him. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. Let's pray. The psalm, if you'd pull open the beginning, that top part there is called the superscription. And it gives a lot, a lot of information, um, particularly in this case. Um, It says, a psalm of David regarding the time he pretended to be insane in front of Abimelech who sent him away. Um, We need to do some digging because that's interesting. Uh, 
what happened there? Uh, what was going on for David when he wrote this psalm? Well, we're going to go, I'm going to go, you don't need to turn there, you can if you choose to, but I'm just going to kind of give you some high points of the book of 1 Samuel, where this story takes place. Um, so first of all, let's get, let's get the frame of David's story in our heads for a minute. Uh, remember that David was anointed king as, of, the, of the nation of Israel because Saul, his predecessor, was such a bad king. Do you remember that? And then uh, David actually did such great military works um, as a warrior and a commander of the army that Saul got jealous of him and sought to kill David um, in 1 Samuel 19. And then there's this big obsessive quest of, of Saul trying to, to murder David in 1 Samuel 20. Do you remember Jonathan uh, tried to front for David to, to let him escape? And this situation, this situation of, of David pretending to be crazy, is the very next chapter, chapter 21. Well, David is on the run from Saul. Okay, so David is on the run from Saul. So hold on to this notion, if you will. David, who is already anointed king by Samuel, is on the run from the guy who refuses to admit that he doesn't deserve to be on the throne anymore. Oh yeah, and it's worth mentioning that, this is, that David married Saul's daughter, so this is his father-in-law who's trying to kill him. Oh yeah, and his best friend is Saul's son, Jonathan. So right now, David is on the run and doesn't know if, if he's ever going to see his wife or his best friend ever again uh, because their dad is trying to kill him. So... David escapes, right? He goes to this different land, and he visits the, the priest at Nob, and he eats the bread. Do you remember this story? Um, and there he actually receives the sword of Goliath, who he killed. Um, and then he goes to visit the king of Gath. And while he's there, some of the people in the court say, wait, isn't that that guy? The, the one of whom they say, he slayed the ten thousands, and Saul slayed the thousands. He's that guy, isn't he? And so they become a little bit threatened. Okay, they, they're worried that David might be there to gain a military advantage or even to kill the king of Gath. David's next move right after this is a little bit surprising, but it's, it's the best that he could do given the circumstances. He's all alone, under threat from his home country's king and his father-in-law. And now he's in a place where he clearly has no friends, right? So he, he acted crazy. He acted convincingly crazy. It says in 1 Samuel 21, 13 that so he pretended to be insane, scratching on doors and drooling down his beard. He, he, he really put it on. And it worked. The, the king of Gath decided that, yeah, that guy's actually crazy and we've got enough crazy people around here. Let's, let's get him out of here. So they allowed David to get away without any trouble or any harm. Okay, so that's the story when David pretended to be insane. What was the very next thing that he did? He wrote Psalm 34. He just got done escaping death two times. And then he writes this psalm, a psalm of praise. He had to act insane, and now he writes a psalm of praise. The first words of the psalm are these, I will praise the Lord at all times. I will constantly speak his praises. I don't think David really exaggerated when he said he will praise the Lord at all times. He's most certainly doing it right there. 
in the midst of a very confusing and frustrating providence. It's not a psalm of triumphant victory in the Lord or, or of courage or of a man speaking out of his wealth and security. Instead, David praises and blesses God at all times, even after he had to act insane in order to escape. And when he was able to act back in his right mind again, he worshiped God. So it's fitting, right, for you too to offer worship in the midst of the craziest and the hardest of circumstances. The most fitting time, the most fitting occasion to worship God is in every circumstance all the time. But how can this be? I can't just tell you that you should worship God all the time and therefore you should do it, right? Where else is there with any other person, place, or thing that we continue to praise it even when life is difficult? I don't think there's any other uh, precedent for this, right? Case in point, uh, the United States. Uh, This week, we're going to celebrate Independence Day. And in the U.S., we have the right to criticize our government, right? That's the First Amendment. Um, And let's just say, Americans use that privilege, don't we? Uh, We criticize our government when things are bad. We don't hold back from our critiques. And that's okay. That's good. In other countries, citizens are literally compelled by force or by censorship to only speak positively about their rulers. But I can tell you that this text, Psalm 34, is not a result of compelled speech. God is not forcing David to say this. We can say that confidently because there are all sorts of other places in the Bible that we would look and know that people rant and rail against God, against Yahweh, and they spurn him and they worship other false gods. So this speech is true worship because David genuinely means what he says. And here's the why. This is, this is why David wants to worship God in the midst of his circumstances, to answer this second question. Because our God is a God of deliverance. Our God is a God of deliverance. Read on with me, starting in, in verse 4, if you'd pull that up. I prayed to the Lord, and he answered me, He freed me from all my fears and continue on. Those who look to him for help will be radiant with joy. No shadow of shame will darken their faces. In my desperation, I prayed and the Lord listened. He saved me from all my troubles. For the angel of the Lord is a guard. He surrounds and defends all who fear him. And and when you read this, it's easy to be gripped by all the different perspectives which David thinks he's being delivered. Right? Go back to verse 4, if you would, uh, quickly. I prayed to the Lord, and he answered me. He freed me from all my fears. That verse right there is a literal retelling of what just happened to him, right? David trusted in God, and God answered. And he did this by freeing David from what David feared most. He escaped from Saul, and he escaped from the court of the king of Gath. And then it gets amplified in verse 5 even further. Go forward one slide. Those who look on him for help will be radiant with joy. So they're not just going to be saved. They're going to be radiant with joy. Frankly, I don't see a whole lot of instances where people are radiant with joy, whether in the church or outside the church. It's a really big deal to be radiant with joy. 
It only happens a few times in our lives. Things like these dramatic cases of deliverance like David just went through. Or like in, you think of the Exodus when the people walked through the sea. I can read that story and be radiant with joy at how God delivers his people. But David definitely does not mean being perpetually happy all the time, does he? Because right now, uh, as he writes this, he's alone in a dark cave um, with nobody around him until Saul relents from his desire to murder him, right? So it isn't happiness of, of this kind of like happy, clappy, lower order. It's a joy of a higher order. We shine like stars in heaven because God holds on to, to us tightly all the way until glory. That's why he's radiant with joy. In this verse, there's a looking forward, knowing that he is and he will be the king of God's people. And since he's looking to God for help, the joy he looks forward to is in no way uncertain. It's guaranteed. David goes on to say that no shadow of shame will darken their faces in verse 5. And that line is particularly, particularly interesting to me because he literally just acted like a madman before writing this. Won't be ashamed? What are you talking about, David? You look like a fool before your enemies. Well, perhaps to the world or to his enemies, he looks like a fool. But in the eyes of God, the one who he aims to please, he is anything but ashamed. When we look to the Lord, we don't need to be ashamed. We don't need to grovel. We don't need to self-loathe. We don't need to fear in his, to be in his sight. We can stand tall in his presence, knowing that he loves us and he chose us and that he desires for us to be with him and for him to be with us. He desires to cherish us as his possession. And then verses 6 and 7, they kind of go together. They showcase how God saves and surrounds and defends those who put their trust in him. The text says, all who fear him, there at the end of verse 7. And that's a different way of saying trusting in God. Fearing and trusting are pretty close to synonyms because the point is that you need to understand the awesome power of God. It's two sides of one coin. Fearing him means you better beware of what happens when you don't trust. Trust means knowing that he frees you from your worst fears. So when you put your trust in him, you will be saved from your troubles. But you might have an objection to this. Okay, sure, you can be saved from your troubles, but why do you have to go through the troubles in the first place? Why does God allow the trouble to happen at all? Wouldn't it be easier for us, certainly, and even for God, if the bad stuff didn't happen in the first place? James Boyce, a, a PCA pastor who's now in glory, says this, commenting on this very situation. Deliverance is one thing. Exemption from trouble is another. What he's saying is that uh, God doesn't promise exemption from trouble. What he does promise is deliverance. We have such a hard time understanding why God could allow suffering in this world. Why David would have to go through all of this suffering at the hands of wicked men like Saul when God had already chosen him to be the king. He'd already anointed him. 
our human nature, it just recoils against suffering. And rightly so. We know that God created the world wonderfully and said that it was very good. Our original state didn't have to suffer at all when it all began. So suffering, we could say, is kind of an alien invasion that was allowed when our first father, Adam, sinned. In other words, it's appropriate for you to recoil at suffering, both in your life and in David's life. It's appropriate, and it's appropriate to question why it exists in our daily lives. But the person who questions why David had to suffer before he was delivered, it's kind of the same question as asking why Adam was created with the capability of sinning at all. Do you see what I'm, what I'm saying? Because when we wonder why David had to suffer, we're actually questioning why suffering exists, right? And we know the answer to that. We know that suffering exists because of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. Why was he allowed to sin if he was created very good? That's a tough pill to swallow. And there are no really clear answers from the scriptures. We don't know exactly what was in the mind of God. It's too deep for us to fathom what comes into his mind in the eternal plan of salvation and creation and redemption. But what we do know is that his ways are above our ways, as it says in Isaiah 55, and we know that because of the, of the way the plan was executed, his son Jesus was more than enough to overcome the sin and suffering. We know that Jesus was enough to provide the deliverance. And isn't it just, it's wonderful and it's astonishing that he would display his love not by removing the suffering from the church in every age and time and place, but by joining into the suffering. That's right. God with us, Emmanuel, the Messiah, who, just, just like we were talking about, has every right to question why is this suffering here before me? But he didn't argue with God. Why did Jesus have to suffer? He didn't argue with God. Instead, he went willingly to the cross to suffer himself. Philippians 2 says, Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. So what I'm saying is that the question of why suffering exists is actually viewing the problem upside down. Instead, we should ask, God, who am I? Who am I that you would send your son to suffer so that I can be saved. Could it be that Adam was allowed to sin so that Jesus could be lifted high? Could it be that suffering exists in this world just so that the love of God could be manifested to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ? Could it be that David is suffering here as a preparatory revelation of the Jesus and the great king to come? A better approach to understanding the suffering we experience is, is through the lens that David sees suffering through. It's true. We aren't granted freedom from suffering in this life, and we aren't always allowed to see what 
benefit the suffering will bring. But two things are certain. First, there is deliverance always for those who trust in the Lord. And second, that he is faithful to his promises and will be trustworthy the next time you call on him as well. This is the why of worship. This is why we worship, because there will always be deliverance again. In fact, if you don't believe it, David dares you. He literally dares you to test it out. It's like a spiritual experiment that David wants to put you through. Uh, In verse 8, in the next slide, he says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Check it out. See for yourself. David isn't just looking back on his story and showing how God has been faithful in the past. He knows, he knows for certain that God will continue to provide for and be good to him. And not just to David, but to anybody who would test it out, who would venture to extend their trust to God. So this is like David's written testimony, but it's also his call to others to believe in God. And and I'm sure that most of us in this room If you're a believer, you might have had this person in your life as well. Maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a friend who told you what a difference God made in in their own life. Maybe it included a personal story of their deliverance. But then they asked you too, do you want to taste and see that the Lord is good? It's time for you to test out your own faith, they might have said to you. Testimonies have this tremendous impact this way. And here's one time we can read about it in the scriptures, recorded for everybody to read. And if, and if you here sitting at City Hope today haven't yet put your trust in Jesus as your hope and Savior, I just want to emphasize David's words to you too. David invites you, and I'll invite you too, to personally taste and see that the Lord is good. It's it's the only way to realize that the second half of verse 8 is true. The joys of those who take refuge in him. Today is the day to give it a try. If you don't know how to give it a try or you don't know what it means to taste and see that the Lord is good, come talk to me after the service. I'd be happy to pray with you and help you know Jesus personally. It's really important. But then after David shares this testimony, he incites all who are godly, Fear the Lord, you his godly people. So even those that are inside the church community need to hear this testimony as well. Fear the Lord, you his saints, and put your trust in him. He says in the second half of verse 9, those who fear him will have all they need. Those who fear him will have all they need. That too might have a little bit of a sour taste in somebody's mouth today. Do we have all we need? And yet, it is a great thing to trust in God and to be a part of this community of Christians, isn't it? Remember that in the Old Testament, there were all of these uh, covenant laws for the people to look out for the vulnerable and for the needy. You can read some of that in the book of Ruth, for instance, where the harvesters of of the crops that Ruth was at, they left a portion of the field for her to glean and so that the underserved could come and have what they need as well. And in the New Testament, that's picked up by the diaconate, who were ordained for nothing other than to maintain the distribution of food, to make sure that those who were needy had everything that they need. 
And over and over throughout the course of history, the Christian community has been responsible for countless forms of aid to the needy. Through institutions, through hospitals, through giving. One might even say uh, that the broader culture has latched on to this idea of the church's concern for the poor. Because from the beginning, the church has championed human rights and the world has kind of caught on. But in a greater sense, it's true that we do have all we need in this life. We have all that we need to lay hold of an eternal inheritance. Putting your faith in the Lord is truly all that you need for salvation, for everlasting life. So while you may not have enough right now, know that you have enough for all eternity. (laughs) But then in verse 11, the next uh, slide, he turns direction. David begins a new section here, and some call the previous uh, 10 verses, verses 1 through 10, the hymn, because it is uh, David's hymn of praise. And verses 11 to the end, they call the sermon, because while the opening exalts God, this latter half teaches and warns people about obedience and wickedness. So now this, 11 and forward, is the how of our praise and worship. Now, I will admit that the how here is not talking about a worship service. If we're thinking about a church service in our heads, this won't answer that question. This is more of a how to live life as a God-fearing worshiper, okay? And the reason for that is because David probably didn't think of worship as just singing songs at church, right? Think of David's time. Get yourself back in, in that mindset, He lived about 3,000 years ago, okay? And the worship lives of the covenant community were, they were very different than today. And they did have this holy Sabbath day that they were meant to consecrate and set aside for the Lord, but it it didn't include church like we think of it today, right? There wasn't really a a song book uh, that they sang from. In fact, it was literally in the process of being written at the time. Uh, That's what the book of Psalms is. Um, Worship was... Not the time that they all gathered to sing songs together because that wasn't part of the Old Testament religious system. For David, worship is a total life-encompassing affair. And it included adherence to the sacrificial laws. It included obedience to the civil law codes. And it included the Ten Commandments. And importantly, included loving God inwardly in the spirit as well. Verse 11 says, I will teach you to fear the Lord. So he's going to show you, he's going to demonstrate in the following verses how to worship God with your whole life. Here's what he wants you to know to be a righteous person, a God-fearing person, or a worshiping person, starting in verse 12. Does anyone want to live a life that is long and prosperous? Then keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. And depending on your attitude and your obedience to those things, the way David sees it, God views you in one of two ways. Either you desire to be obedient to these things, which which constitutes worshiping God with your whole life, or, and you're considered, therefore, a righteous person, or 
You don't want to obey these things. You don't worship God with your whole life. You are called the wicked. And in verses 15 through 22, everything after this, David basically goes back and forth between a description of these two types of people. The way that God will treat a righteous person and the way God will treat a wicked person. In other words, he kind of pronounces the outcomes for the worshiper and the non-worshiper. And instead of going back and forth and reading all those things uh, and trying to interpolate them, I'm just going to arrange this list by two categories. I'm going to start with the non-worshiper. This is who David calls the wicked. David says, God is, the, the Lord is going to turn his face against those who do evil in verse 16. He erases their memory from the earth. In verse 21, he says, calamity will destroy the wicked and those who hate the righteous, such as David, will be punished. Needless to say, those are not great outcomes. It's a pretty stark idea. He doesn't really talk about this third category, this lukewarm category of people who do some good things but don't really acknowledge God as their Lord. You're either righteous, you're, you belong to God, or you are subject to calamity and punishment. And I don't say that to scare Christians. I say that to show from God's perspective there are people who serve him and then there's everybody else. There are those who are destined for redemption, those who worship God. And there are those destined for punishment, those who do not acknowledge God or even God's people. Those are the two categories. And it kind of begs for you to place yourself in one of those two categories. But for the worshiper, here are the outcomes, here are the benefits for the worshiper. God will watch over them. His ears are open for their, to their cries for help. He hears his people when they call to him. He rescues them from their trouble, as David himself experienced. The Lord remains close to the brokenhearted. Again, he rescues those whose spirits are crushed. In verse 19, it says, The righteous person has trouble, but the Lord will rescue every time. Notice the repetition of the word rescue here. He protects their bones. He redeems those who serve him. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. Now, now can we just agree together that this is really good news? I want to point out some of the things from this list. David never once said something like, one slip from the righteous person is enough to earn condemnation. He does not say that. Instead, he says, if you turn to verse 22, he doesn't say one slip will, will earn condemnation. He says, no one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. Meaning it's not about perfect obedience to the law. It's about this desire to obey him. David never says once that the righteous person might have reason to doubt their faith or to feel shaky about their faith when hard things happen to them. Instead, in verse 19, if you go back, he says, the Lord comes to the rescue each time. And in verse 18, go back one more, it does not say, that God favors the one who has put their life together, who looks clean on the outside and worships perfectly both inside and out. Instead, it says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. 
City Hope, which one of you has been brokenhearted? Which one of you has crushed spirits? Have you, have you come to church thinking another church member or maybe God himself is going to find you out and is going to condemn you? Have you been the one who doesn't have your life in perfect order? If that is you, God welcomes you. God invites you to worship him. Because it doesn't say that God hears the people who don't experience troubles in their life. It says God hears his people when they call to him for help. And it assumes that the people that, that are his will have trouble and that he can deliver them out of that trouble. Because again, our God is a God of deliverance. So the how of worship, how we worship God is not to execute your life perfectly. But how do you worship God with your whole life? You turn to God in faith and repentance. You believe in him, knowing that he can and that he will rescue you because that's what he wants to do. You worship God through faith and repentance. God's whole plan was to come close to the brokenhearted, and he did. He came to the brokenhearted by sending his son among us. He indeed rescues those whose spirits are crushed by being crushed for our sins. I want to close by finishing out David's story and, and completing the loop. David's story of one of, is one of humiliation that leads to exaltation, that leads to an inheritance. We know that chapters later, David is eventually made king over Saul. But then he sins again, doesn't he? And then he's delivered again from his sins. Why? Because he repents. Then there's his son's uprising, Absalom's uprising, who uh, steals the, the throne from his father, David. But along the way, there's this promise from God of salvation. Salvation, not unto the kingdom that David is now the king over, but salvation into a greater kingdom. He looks forward to something. He's looking forward to a greater king. David pointed to a greater king that he would have an inheritance through. So the pattern is humbling for God's people, exaltation, and an inheritance. And we too are united to this great king, this great King Jesus. If we are humble before God and worship him at all times, then he will exalt us and we too will have an inheritance in his kingdom. Just as verse 1 says, or I'm sorry, verse 3 says, let us exalt his name together. And if you do that, then God will exalt you too. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, we do offer ourselves to you in worship, and we don't just worship you through song. We worship you with our whole lives. God, we too are a people just like David who experienced trouble and hardship and brokenness and suffering. And yet, God, we look to you for deliverance, for rescue. We call to you and we know that you answer, and so that's why we have faith and that we trust in you, because we know you will do it again the next time. God, would you continue to uplift us and would you continue to hear us? 
Would we be strengthened by hearing David's testimony? And would we, together as a people, taste and see that you are good over and over and over again in our lives? And God, we do this not so that we would have uh, happiness and, and freedom from troubles in this life, but so that we would be delivered into a new kingdom, that we would live eternally with you, we as your inheritance and you as our inheritance. God, we long to be with you. We know, we have full confidence that you will deliver us from the domain of darkness into the domain of your heavenly light. We pray all this, God, in the name of your son, Jesus, the guarantor of that salvation. Amen. Well, let me come over here and mute this mic. I'm talking this mic. There uh, was an email that was sent to us that sometimes there would be a recitation of the psalm. That's kind of the point of the psalms, to be recited. Um, instead of doing that, we're going to sing the psalm. Uh, psalm 34 is, uh, hold on, i got to take this off, is uh, in Shane and Shane's Taste and See. So would you please stand? <laughs> 